Good morning. The scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin if you would like to read along. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. A convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thank you, Rachel. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and uh, we're here now in chapter 6. Whether if you're jumping in with us for the first time today, uh, and if you are, welcome. Uh, Or if you've been tracking with us, uh, let's dive in. But first, let's pray together. Let's ask for God's help. God, we're asking that you would come and glorify yourself in our midst. Uh, This time, you intend to be of service to our souls But we know that our souls, our lives are best served when you are exalted, when we see you for all that you are, when we love you for all that you promise to be for us in Jesus. And so open our eyes to see you and then in the light of you to be able to see ourselves that we might be changed. God, we want to be changed. That's why we're here, not just for a passing experience, not just to check off a religious box, say that we were at a service but we want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We want to be like you. And so come and do that. The good news is you promised to do just that. Send your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday was an exciting day in the Quan household. We plucked our first bright red tomato from our little old tomato plant that's growing in our, on our back deck And we're excited. We're going to eat it tonight, I think. And uh, I don't even like tomatoes. Um, But I'm not really telling the kids that, you know, good example and all that stuff, right? But uh, we're excited. And even more exciting, we've noticed that there are four or five more tomatoes, green ones, growing on that vine, ripening slowly. And so there's more joy to come. But... I've got to admit, and I'm keeping this to myself, but I'm a little concerned about this tomato plant, a little concerned that our little friend might be in for some trouble because it looks kind of like a mess. It's sort of drooping over, little wilted, hunched over, weighed down by all the fast-growing green tomatoes. And I'm pretty sure, not a tomato expert, but we need to get some Stakes or a trellis or something to prop up those vines, hold it up, give it a little bit of support because apparently the vines haven't grown strongly and quickly enough to support the growing 
tomatoes. You see, fast growth was and is exciting. But sometimes better structure and support is needed for health and for sustained growth. You can see I'm already making my segue. That's what the early church had faced after the early months of rapid growth that it had been blessed by the Spirit with. As we've seen in our study of the book of Acts, the church just saw this explosion of growth on the spiritual front. All this fruit. But they ran into some trouble when their ministry systems, if we can call it that, couldn't quite hold up the weight of growth. Let me explain the situation. What we find in this passage here today, just seven verses, is that a problem, a problem had arisen. We'd seen already the church had faced problems of many kinds. Persecution, immorality in the community. But here we find a different kind of problem. As we're told in the second half of verse 1 right away. Widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. But not all widows, mind you, just some of them. You might have noticed two curious phrases in verse 1. Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. You say, what's that? What are they? Hellenistic Jews was a phrase that referred to Jewish people that were Hellenistic or Greek in their culture. Which means they spoke the Greek language and they thought and kind of behaved culturally like Greek people. Hebraic Jews, on the other hand, spoke the Aramaic language. That's an ancient form of Hebrew. And they were actually more immersed in Hebrew culture rather than Greek culture like their counterparts. So two different subcultural groups within the one ethnic people of Jewish Christians present in the Jerusalem church. There in that church, they had Christians representing each of these different Jewish cultural groups and widows from each of these two groups. But it was only the Hebraic Jewish widows in the church that weren't apparently getting the food that they needed. And of course, widows in those days, and this was a responsibility and a joy of the church to assume that care upon themselves. Therefore, the widows were completely dependent upon this distribution of food. And it appears that this oversight wasn't intentional. No one was sort of excluding them on purpose. It was just simply a breakdown in the ministry systems or program in some fashion. Even so, the Hebraic Jewish Christians were told in verse 1, excuse me, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians were told in, Jew- in verse 1, began to complain on behalf of their widows. And so how did the apostles respond? Well, we're told in verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together, all the new Christians in this community together, and they proposed to form a new leadership role, One that would be created just for this cause, the distribution of food. So they say in verse 3, as we read, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. We will turn this responsibility over to them. 
People loved the idea. It was a good idea. And so they proceeded to choose seven people. And we have their names here in this passage. Stephen, whose story we're going to hear more about next week. Philip, we find out more about him in chapter 8. He's the one that led an Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. He was the very first African convert to Christianity. And we also hear about five others. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. These seven together would fill this new role. And not only did this solution actually successfully address the problem, good news, the complaints, the conflict, the need for a better system of caring for widows in the Christian community, all of that was solved to some degree. But it actually also unleashed brand new growth upon the Christian community. New growth in this brand new movement of the gospel, as we're told in the conclusion of the passage in verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The church grew even more after this problem was addressed. After all, what's true of tomato plants is true of the church. Fast growth is exciting, but sometimes better structure and support is needed for health and continued growth. So, what are some lessons that we can learn? What are ways in which this passage and this scenario can become more personal, relevant, applicable to us here in 2019 in our church in Washington, D.C.? Four quick things, four lessons we can draw from. Number one, let's notice The cancer of complaints. The cancer of complaints. Verse 1 tells us this. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked. What's interesting is that we hear about these complaints. This was actually leading to conflict. Uh, This was actually leading to division and disunity In the church, in fact, this complaining was such a big deal, this is part of the reason why Luke ends this story with such a grand conclusion in verse 7. It celebrates, so the word of God spread. Why? Because these complaints were addressed. But what's the big deal about complaints? Surely there are always things worth complaining about. Things in churches that aren't going right, that are broken, that do need fixing, including the need for a better distribution system for those that are going hungry. Surely that's okay. What's the big deal? Well, the word that's used here in this passage here for complaints actually is the very same word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the ways in which the Israelites were continually murmuring, grumbling, and complaining, traveling through the wilderness for 40 years. It was a certain kind of complaining. Some might say a complaint expressed in murmuring. More than that, it was a kind of complaining that takes the person you're complaining about and puts them on trial. They were kind of accusing Moses, the Israelites were, of not doing his job. In fact, they started to threaten to stone him as a fraud, as a false prophet. You see, this is complaints in our hearts that almost get, well, violent. 
Maybe not physically, but verbally. Maybe not verbally, but even emotionally. You see, this complaint, this habit almost of complaining can become infectious, can become deadly. You see, it's not just that the people were upset. It's that it was threatening the very unity of the church. See, the issue that was on the table was real. It was worthy of addressing with seriousness and care, and the apostles do. But the people weren't responding to that concern in a healthy way. You see, it's possible to notice a legitimate concern, but to complain about it illegitimately, especially in the heart. And so we need to take care about how we notice weaknesses, whether if it's in the church community, a certain program, or especially about one another, complaining about people. I mean, it's really worth pausing and asking yourself, are you complaining right now, right now, against a person or a group of people in the church? And again, it might even be a legitimate concern or wound that you are considering. But again, it's possible to have a legitimate concern, but to complain about it illegitimately in a way that's destructive, not constructive. Is there someone or something that you're kind of always eye-rolling, rolling your eyes about? Um, Even or maybe especially behind closed doors. Maybe you're not doing anything to them directly, but maybe it's with your friends. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's in the quiet of your own heart. Don't ever forget, grumbling, complaining is not only contagious across our relationships in the community, and that's why this passage deals with it so seriously, but this complaining and grumbling is also cancerous in our own hearts. First lesson, the cancer of complaints. Number two, second lesson, the priority of the vulnerable. The priority of the vulnerable. The problem was that there were widows that were hungry, not receiving their daily distribution of food. The apostles go out of their way to create a brand new leadership structure just to suit this need. And in fact, as we pay attention to the Bible throughout the book of Acts and the New Testament, it appears that this was the beginning of the formation of what was to become the office of deacon, a permanent office role, a leadership role in the church that would be devoted to caring for the physical, material, food needs of the members of the church. You see, here was a need that was so important, apparently, not only to the apostles, but to the Christ whom they served. So important that they created, from that point on forever, until Jesus returns, a new role just to meet this need. It reflects the priorities of the heart of God. It wasn't just a temporary fix. Uh, They didn't just create an interim program but a permanent office, a perpetual role. And then the people that they filled in with that role, they didn't say, well, any warm body, you want to volunteer? No, they actually engaged the whole church in a process. We'll talk about it more. Leaders with qualifications, upstanding people, giving them authority, giving them leadership capacity. It shows, again, how important this role was. And it teaches us a little bit 
about the God whom we serve, a God who cares deeply about the vulnerable, a God who in his heart carries the widow, the fatherless, the refugee, the poor, as a priority concern in his heart. That's what we find throughout the Old Testament and carried on here as a recapitulation of the heart of God. As if to say, don't forget, this is still the same God of the Old Testament operating in the life of the New Testament church. The God who says, I am the God of the fatherless. A personal father to the fatherless. I am a husband to the widow. I am the caregiver to the poor. Do you know a God like this? God is a God who is always after helping those who are helpless. This is his grace. He does this spiritually, of course. He knows we can't save ourselves. We cannot atone for our sins, whether by paying down our guilt or by trying to compensate by more good things that we do. We cannot atone for our wrongs. We need a Savior to come and save us. Give us true forgiveness as Jesus purchased for us on the cross as he died for every one of our sins. And he gives it to us then as grace, not something we need to earn, not something we need to prove that we are qualified for, but rather something that we simply need to receive on our knees as debtors to God, simply saying, thank you, I could not have done it myself. God, of course, cares for us in our spiritual helplessness, but he also cares for us in our physical helplessness. He loves us so, caring for our deep needs. This has always been a mark of the church. As we look back in history, we know that by the third century, so about 200 plus years after the time that this passage is making reference to, the early Christians were famous for the ways in which they fed not only their own hungry, but also the hungry in the local cities around them. In fact, by some measures, the early Christians fed more than 1,500 of the hungry and destitute in Rome every single day. In the mid-300s, the, the Roman emperor Julian, who was doing all that he could to extinguish the Christian faith from the Roman Empire, he sought to crush Christianity and revive pagan religions all over again, even he had to concede some of the power and credibility of how the Christians were living. Uh, crush Christianity he attempted to do, but that was hard, he once complained, quote, because Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the, Christian care, the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help, we should render them. This has always been a mark of the Christian church, prioritizing the vulnerable with compassion, mercy, and generosity. And so the question rises up again. Insofar as we're a church that carries the heart of Christ himself, does our church reflect the same priority? We strive to, but how are we doing? 
And not only us corporately as a church, but also our personal lives. Does your life reflect this priority of Christ? Mercy for those who struggle to help themselves. You know, we were always meant to lean on each other. There's no shame in needing help, dear friends. The only question is, will you be humble enough to ask for it? And will you be generous enough to give it? How are you on your personal front, in your personal relationships, with neighbors, family members, friends around you? Maybe this is one way for you to grow in this ethic this summer. Maybe this is one reason why you ought to linger around after service today for the Art of Neighboring book club. Even if you've never heard of the book before this very moment or before today, this is a way for you to go ahead and jump in. I believe there might be copies for you at the meeting downstairs. Come on out. Let's learn to love our neighbors, to bear each other's burdens together. This takes not only theological, biblical conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit, it also takes skill. How do you do it? Let's read. Let's learn together the art of neighboring. The cancer of complaints, number two, the priority of the vulnerable, number three, another lesson, the appointment of faithful leaders. We find here in this passage the appointment of faithful leaders. What's interesting here as the church opens up this need into the community that we see that first these leaders were chosen for their spiritual qualifications, first and foremost. Sort of a different criteria of leadership, isn't it? They were chosen for their spiritual qualifications, not their popularity, not their social power status, not their outward impressiveness. But what we find in verse 3 is this, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are the coolest of the cool, who are making the most money, uh, who have the best reputations publicly. What does it say? who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Because, of course, figuring out how to make distributions with limited resources to people that are desperately in need takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of judgment calls and decision-making. In verse 5, one of the candidates, Stephen, was described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And remember, this was a role that required the practical arrangement of these systems of caring for the poor in the life of the church. And yet, what's being required of these leaders is not simply the skills of a social worker, though they certainly needed that competency as well. What they needed was spiritual character. What they needed was spiritual wisdom. What they needed was faith. What they needed was gospel love. What they needed was humility. These things were essential to this role. But notice also these leaders were chosen by the people. Verse 2, the 12 gathered all the disciples together, so they involved the whole community. Verse 3, they're addressing brothers and sisters. In verse 3, they're also telling the people, choose seven men from among you. In verse 5, we're told that they actually chose seven men and then presented them to the apostles. And you can see the practical wisdom here. There was a complaint that was sort of stirring through the pews, as it were. People that were upset, even grumbling against each other. And so there was some wisdom, I believe, for them to sort of involve the very people that were feeling it the most. There's some ministry wisdom. 
Not just making a top-down decision, but giving people some sense of empowerment and inclusion in the decision-making process. But even more than just that, there was a sense in which they were actually acknowledging that the Holy Spirit rested upon every member of the church. There was a sense in which church members, from the greatest to the least, have an important power to exercise in the life of the church. And that is to help select qualified leaders in the church. It's why in many Christian traditions, church members are given the power and the responsibility to nominate leaders and to elect them. This is something that we do in our church as well. And then, of course, those leaders are authorized by the apostles we see here that they laid hands upon these individuals and prayed over them. They were not just democratically selected. They were also approved by the apostles, the existing leaders, given them the authority and blessing and identification apostolically that they needed. But there's one more thing about these leaders I want to point out here that's very interesting and I think helpful. And that is that there was an ethnic specificity to who they were. If you see in verse 5, we're told that they chose Stephen and Philip, Purcurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And historians and scholars will point out that all seven of them have Greek names. Well, this is interesting, right? Because we already said that the problem was it was the Greek cultural Jewish widows that were being left out, that were being overlooked. And the apostles and the people together somehow gleaned wisdom to know that what they most needed in this moment was not just more Hebraic Jewish leaders. Apparently, just more of the same would not have gotten the job done. What they needed were representatives from among the subcultural group that was being marginalized in the community. It was the Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked, and so they needed Hellenistic leaders to help narrow that gap to help bring people along, to help amplify voice that was not yet being heard. Remember, the problem wasn't just the care of widows. It was the care of a certain cultural group of widows. There was a blind spot that needed to be addressed. And so, of course, there's wisdom here for us as well. When the problem is cultural, then the solution also needs to be cultural. And it's not wrong to be intentional about the cultural profile of leaders whose job it is to represent and to lead people of a certain cultural profile. This is part of the wisdom of God that we find here in the scriptures. There's a way in which we need to build our communities with intentionality, sensitive to all our ethnic and racial needs and interests and what it takes for us to be a unified community, the apostles apparently were not lost on that. In fact, we can glean wisdom from them in how we can live and lead today. So this gives us helpful insight into the kind of leaders that we should always be selecting as well. People that are known for their spiritual qualifications, wisdom, fullness of the spirit, affirmed by the people, authorized and approved by given leaders. Consideration and sensitivity to ethnic dynamics, cultural dynamics in the community. 
Who might we recognize in the life of our community to be Stevens and Phillips and Timons in the life of Grace Meridian Hill? Because, friends, we need more deacons and deaconesses. And in fact, this fall, we actually intend to reopen nominations uh, for these roles, together with the Office of Elder and other roles, too. And we would love for you to even take the pattern of this passage and say, hey, me too, I would love to exercise this grace, this privilege, this calling. But who do you notice around you? Who might serve? Who might be those that will help us carry the heart of God who prioritizes the vulnerable? Uh, who, who might be the ones that can help us grow as a community that reflects the heart of Christ? And would you consider praying through this over the next couple of months before we actually open those nominations, pray over each other, but even pray over yourself? Maybe God might be calling you. I think every single leader that we presently have installed in our uh, senior leadership team, every single one of them initially said, I don't know if you have the right person. And so don't be surprised if maybe right now you're saying to yourself, well, that's not for me, because you never know what the Lord might do. And there might be some ways that you might be more qualified than you think and more called than you know. The appointment of faithful leaders, fourthly and lastly, we'll close with this, the wise division of labor. One strand that flows throughout this passage and the way that the apostles considered this need and solved this need was that they again and again said, this really shouldn't be us solving it. So let's create a new role. Uh, This can't be us. We have other things we need to focus on. So let's create a new role because it's that important. To fill that need. Look at verse 2. The apostles say this. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And on the, at the end of verse 3, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, let me point this out. It might sound on the surface of it like the apostles are saying, if we're too important to do that, let's give the ministry of tables over to those other people. But what you have to know is the word for ministry is simply the word servant or ser- service. And it's used twice in reference to the ministry of the word of God in verse 2. And then also in this language of waiting on tables. That's actually the, the service of tables. So the apostles are looking at both of these as vitally important roles. The ministry of word and the ministry of tables. The service of people in their need for spiritual food. And the service of people in their need for physical food. Not one better than the other, but rather all of them needed. John Stott comments on this. That there is no hint whatever that the apostles regarded social work as inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. It was entirely a question of calling. They were simply protecting their calling and focus, public and private prayer, as well as preaching and teaching the word of God. This is something we must do, they were saying. We must not be distracted from our priorities. But secondly, they were committed to delegating and sharing an essential responsibility. And so they created a perpetual office to meet that need. And so the takeaway for us then is this is one more example of how God calls all of his people to ministry, to service in Christ, 
that he has gifted and called every single one of you to some form of service or another, which you might be uniquely suited for, that you might need to protect because of a focus that it requires. But each one of you, whether if it's ministries of word or ministries of service and tables or ministries of welcoming and hospitality or ministries of music or ministries of encouragement or ministries of relationship or ministries of fun and laughter, whatever it might be, we need you. The community of Christ is a community that needs to continually confess that nobody can do it all. That we actually need the diversity of personalities and the diversity of gifts and calling that we have invested in every single one of you. And this is part of living out a life in joy in Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, we're told by the Apostle Paul that Jesus is like a king who, after his death and resurrection and ascension, he's climbing up to his throne with all the spoils of his victory. And what does he do? He doesn't hoard it for himself, but rather he shares it with all of his people. He, he gives you a name. He gives you a seat at his throne. And he also gives you his victory itself. These are the gifts that he gives you. He says, here, I'm not the only gifted one here. You are. Can you believe that? Jesus is looking at you and saying, I'm not the only gifted one here. I've given you my gifts to speak, to love, to see, to listen, to touch, to run, to do all things in my name, with my presence, by the power of my spirit, to love people as you perhaps have been best wired to love. And so what does that look like? For you, We said earlier as we were honoring the children's teachers and leaders and volunteers that it takes a church to care for kids. You know, it takes a church to welcome. It takes a church to show hospitality. It takes a church to grow spiritually, to grow in grace together. It takes every single one of you. We're not asking you to sign up for anything immediately, but I want to just say throughout this summer, can you ponder what your calling in this community might be. How God might be calling you to serve, especially come September. So that we can kind of step in with intentionality, not backing in to things that we need to do or needs that we have, but rather fullness of joy. And with a sense of, I'm doing this for Jesus and for neighbor. To care to step into different roles. We're doing our best to clarify job descriptions and roles. We're doing our best to actually improve the ways in which we're communicating with people in their various roles of service. We have listened to people say that I'm sometimes exhausted, being asked to do too many things. We're trying to consolidate and instill a little bit more focus. Even invite you to say, as the apostles said, this is something I must do. Let's give the other piece to somebody else. You are empowered to say that because we want you to serve with joy. We want you to serve sustainably. We want you to serve not just because there's a need, but because it's an honor to serve Christ. And so we want it to be sustainable. We want to instill more rhythms in the way that we're serving. We're moving to a year calendar where we're saying every person serving in a ministry team, you can serve for 12 months. And after that term, 
Move on to something else if you'd like to. You can keep going in that role, but we're not going to hold you back. We want you to be kept fresh so that each year, every 12 months, that we're bringing in a fresh start to everything that we're doing. Some roles will take a little bit longer of a time commitment. Small group leaders, moms group leaders, neighborhood group leaders, perhaps, still talking through those details. But some roles, it'll be better for them to serve a little bit longer, maybe two years rather than one. But we're trying to find ways to make your service a joy because God is calling every single one of you not into a life of drudgery in the life of the church but a life of reward of fullness of fruit and the power of the Holy Spirit this is what the apostles gather together as they face this near crisis of a complaint because of the need that wasn't being met They solved it, and then we find in verse 7 this great, conclusive, celebratory declaration, so the word of God spread. They got it right. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, which tells us that there would have been no growth in the church without quieting the complaints. Who knows where that cancer might have led? There would have been no future growth without the care of the widows. There would have been no growth without healthy structures of leadership. There would have been no growth without division of labor and the exercise of the gifts of all God's people. But by God's leading and wisdom, they got it right. And by God's leading and wisdom, perhaps so can we. To be a healthy church, growing not just numerically, but rather growing in depth, growing in sincerity of heart, Growing in grace, growing in our relationships, in our intimacy, in the generosity of our sacrifice and service, not only to one another, but also to our neighbors. Don't you want to be a part of that church? Jesus has given us the blueprint. He's given us his Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that superintended this process here in chapter 6. He's given him to you and me. Let's see what God might do. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that you would come. And make us into this sort of church. One that is attentive to the complaints of our hearts. One that cares for the vulnerable in our midst. One that looks to uh, raising up healthy, qualified leaders. Ones that are giving each other opportunities to serve with a wise division of labor. Dear Jesus, make us this sort of church for the growth of your kingdom in our midst and for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.